sometimes I'm just not done singing. You know what I mean? Like I could do that for a while. Uh, but as we transition now um, into coming to the, the word this morning, um, we just want to pray as we always do. Again, inviting the Lord, uh, truly preparing our hearts uh, to hear whatever he would say to us this morning. So would you join me in that? Lord Jesus, we need you to speak. We are a people of the voice. You speak, we follow. Would you speak to us this morning, God? Would we open our hearts wide, inviting you in, God? Wherever you want to go, we give you permission. Speak this morning. Lead us as your people. May we be obedient to follow. God, as John the Baptist prayed, I pray, may I decrease and you increase this morning. May your people hear your voice and your voice only. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have struggled a lot over this message, um, not really knowing how to, how to approach it. And, and Kenna, you put some words to what I've been feeling all week of going, as I look at the world around us right now, uh, every news headline, uh, every major city across our country, uh, the demonstrations, the protests, and sometimes the, the riots, the, the cry of people for justice, for equality, and I go, okay, but I'm in Elkins, West Virginia. Demographically, we are 95% white. How in the world do we address some of these things from where we sit? If we were in New York City, life would be harder in a lot of ways, but speaking to some of these issues would be easier because everyone wouldn't look like me. But we're not. We're in Elkins, West Virginia, as a state, 95% white. How do we interact with what's happening? How do we have conversation? How do we answer questions from where we are. It can be an intimidating thing. Most of the time, from a really good place of going, I don't want to say something accidentally offensive. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't know the right answer. I don't know the right words, the right terminology. And so oftentimes, we just step back and be quiet instead. What we're going to look at this morning is I don't believe that that option is left open to us. Everything that has been happening around our country, uh, most of you know, unless you've been under a rock for the last week and a half, uh, there was a spark that kind of ignited this whole thing um, in the murder of a man. And I will probably cry a couple times today. The murder of a man named George Floyd. And, and even... I know there's going to be some people who, who have a hard time with even using the word murder uh, because we've been trained to not associate police with the word murder, you know, and that's a difficult thing for us, but that's what it's been called by the law. There's been arrests and all that stuff, and, and there was something in what happened on that video that has sparked a powder keg in our country, and something that I think has been simmering for a long time, but there's something about what happened, and maybe it's the fact that you can see the whole thing on video, and if you haven't watched it, I'm not going to recommend that you do. 
one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. And one of the things that breaks my heart even further is over the last week and a half, I've reached out uh, to some brothers that I have in, in the black community and gone, I don't even know what to say, but like, I'm frustrated. I can't imagine how frustrated you are. And just to try to like touch base, I can't fix anything, but just to reach out and say, whatever it looks like, like I'm with you, my heart breaks for you. And to hear from these men, pastors, church members, godly men, every one of them, their own stories of times that they have been spit on by the police, called racial slurs by the police, some of them uh, recipients of, of brutal force by the police, wrong accusations, and even imprisonment with no factual evidence, whatever. And some of the, these things that you read about, you hear about some of these stories of systemic racism, but it's people that I know, people that I respect, people that are not only leading churches, but leading the church forward. And I'm like, what? There is something about what has, what has happened, what has been caught on video, that brothers and sisters in the black community have gone, that's my story, and no one's been listening. No one listened when I told it, but now that they have people's attention, they're rising up. And, and I'm so incredibly thankful that when I look at the videos uh, of the peaceful demonstrations and protests, it's not just African Americans. There are white people linking arms with them. There are brown people linking arms with them. And it's a whole community moving forward. I am so thankful for that. But as I've talked with a lot of white brothers and sisters about it, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of we don't know what to think. We don't, you know, and, and there's, there's this move in our community that says, look, all cops aren't bad. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, police are, are, are good and they're there to help us. And I would say, yes, amen. But when you talk to a lot of those in the black community, whatever few bad apples there are, they continue to experience that personally. They're not even telling me stories of somebody I knew. It's their own personal stories. And, but there's confusion on what do we, like, let's just call it what it is. What do we as white people do? What do we as white people in West Virginia, a predominantly white state, what can we do? How do we help? We don't want to make things worse. We don't want to demonize the police. We don't want to, to demonize those that don't look like us. And we kind of feel like caught and confused. And, and for me, I'm, I'm always going, how do I simplify this? How do we figure out what's really at the heart of it? Because there's so many distractions out there. Like, I want you to hear this. I believe these are distractions I, I condemn the rioting, the violence, the, the destruction of property. I condemn the, the unwarranted police brutality, even towards peaceful protesters. I, I, it's wrong. All of it is wrong. I encourage those to use their, their First Amendment rights to gather and to be heard peacefully. I want to encourage them. And so as I've started to go, man, there's so many distractions because every time a business gets burned or something gets thrown at the police, that becomes a distraction. And there are many that take that as the opportunity to go, see, 
I told you. Or every time a police officer uses unnecessary force. I was even looking at a story this morning. Two more officers in Buffalo brought up on charges uh, for assault. Some on the other side go, see, I told you. And it's a distraction, church. We cannot get distracted by it. What is really at stake here? For me, it's been really helpful to just go, okay, for those that are peacefully protesting, what is it they are crying out for? What, what's, the, what's the hashtag? What's the t-shirt say? What's the sign say? What's kind of the common denominator? What is it, Brandon? Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. That, that is what they are crying out. Wherever you are in this spectrum of where you stand on the issues and all of that, I'm not going to get political. I'm not going to tell you to be left, to be right, Democrat, Republic. Not my place. I'm simply saying, listen to what the people are crying for. Black Lives Matter. You would say black lives matter only because you believe that other people don't believe that. The, the black community feels so devalued as a people. Our lives don't matter. They can be taken on a whim, whether through imprisonment, whether through which, which man, when you look at the statistics, it is so lopsided. There, there, there are systemic problems whether through police brutality or whatever it is, their lives, they feel that no one values them. They can be taken like that. If they, they boiled everything down, and the one cry, our lives matter. And we as a church should raise that same cry because we believe that every life matters. And I don't say that some... and. Hmm, this makes me mad. Some have, in response to, to a cry for Black Lives Matter, they've used every life matters to kind of push them down again. Oh, be quiet. Every life matters. Everybody knows that. I don't use this that way to, to go, oh, they should just say every life matters. In our country, black lives have been so devalued that we need to put a spotlight on it and go, specifically, these lives matter too. White lives, blue lives matter was a big thing uh, in, in supporting police for a while. Brown lives, red lives, yellow lives, they all matter. But right now, those in our country who need to hear it most, black lives matter. We've been talking over the last couple months about kingdom life, partnering with the king in moving his kingdom forward. And I've just started looking at this and going, how does, how does the kingdom affect what's going on in our country right now. And we have to understand one of the values of the kingdom. Every, every kingdom, every culture has certain values that they live by. As Americans, we have certain values on independence and freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that we kind of all agree on and we move forward with. At least, at least we say that. God's kingdom is the same. There are certain values that drive the kingdom forward. If you're going to partner with the king, you have to value what the king values, yes? One of the values of the kingdom, and we're going to look at a bunch of places in scripture, you cannot escape it, is that intrinsic value is a kingdom value. Intrinsic value means value that doesn't have to be earned. Value that belongs to you simply because you are. Intrinsic value, the value of every human being, is a kingdom value. And if you think about this, the church has been championing this in a lot of areas 
for a long time. Who, who is the loudest voice standing up against abortion? The church. Why? Because we believe that every single life has value, yes? yes? Even before that child takes its first breath on its own, it has value. It is a person. It is a life. We, we get this from Psalm 139, where, where God, or excuse me, David talking about his relationship with God, and he says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. You knew me before I was even born. David's talking about God's handcrafting every human life in the mother's womb. God is intricately involved because that life has value. And as a church, we've been championing this, rightfully so. Every life has value because God is, is intricately weaving together every human life. But something that I've heard asked a number of times is going, how come we don't see the church showing the same passion for black American lives as they do for unborn lives? Not to push one down and put the other one up above it, but going, man, there is, there is vigor in the church. There is teaching about it in the church. There are peaceful protests by the church. But when, a, when an African-American gets shot, gets wrongfully imprisoned, gets the church just kind of goes, for the most part, eh. I'm sure it was just a one-off thing. And we're finding that's not the case. As a community, what happened with George Floyd and many others resonates because they say, that's my story. No one values me and no one is speaking up on my behalf. We as believers must be in the business of giving value to the valueless. It is part and parcel to the kingdom to give value to the valueless. We're going to look in a little bit at some, some harsh statements of Scripture that say for those who don't do this, we'll get there later. Define valueless because people won't be able to see that it has hopes when they listen online. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, um, for those, like I said, the people will be listening later. Um, when I say value to the valueless, you who are here can see that there's quotes around valueless. Those that culture deems to be less valued. Again, coming back to the scriptures, and we're going to look at things here in a little bit. Every single life has equal value. You cannot read the scriptures and get any other message. Every life has equal value. So when I say valueless... Not those who are just void of value, but those who culture looks at and says, you have less value. We as a church, as individual believers, are called to bring value to them, to point out the intrinsic value that the king has placed in them. It is our call as a church. Since the very beginning, man has tried to place himself over other men. Since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, man has been trying to gain power over other men. And the greatest tool that mankind has used to assert power and dominance over other men is to devalue them, to dehumanize them. They're dogs. 
that we, we come up with nicknames for them that dehumanize them, that take away the God-given value that they've been given. And from there, we see it leading to all kinds of violence and war and, and ugliness throughout history. But it, in every case I'm aware of, it always starts with first creating things that take away value. The good news of the gospel is this, every single person has value. What price did the king pay for you? Everything, right? The highest price he paid for you. What price did he pay for the impoverished in a ghetto in one of our major cities? Everything. There's, there's a narrative that goes around in, in our world, in our culture, that says you are valuable based on what you offer to society. As long as you are... Uh, have a good job and are making money and are paying your taxes and you're valuable, if you don't really have any skills, if you grew up in a place where there weren't options open to you and so you've turned to crime and you, like, let's even take it on a worst case scenario, you're imprisoned, you're, then you're not valuable. You're useless to society and you have no value. And there's even been all kinds of ugliness that comes from that tying back into abortion and how some of this was put together that I don't have time to get into. But the world has said you're valuable based on what you contribute. Jesus says you're valuable because I made you and I told you so. Nothing you can do can take away from it. You can't do anything to earn more of it. And we as the church are to take that message forward. The good news of the gospel is that you have value in the king's eyes. And I'm going to call that out in you. You feel worthless. You feel like you've messed up your life so bad. You feel like you never had a fair shake. Whatever it may be, the king says you have value. And in fact, he paid the highest price for you. And that's good news. When we look at the life of Jesus and this whole idea of bringing value to the, quote, valueless, this was all throughout his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus, and most of you know this story, goes into a synagogue and they need somebody to, to do their daily reading for the day. And so they get out the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus grabs the scroll and here's what he says in Luke 4, 17 to 21. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. Here's something that the church has done for a long time is we've taken this and we've made it spiritual, which I believe that it is, but we've made it only spiritual. Preach the good news to the poor, meaning those that just don't have the good news yet. Typically, in the church's history, those that look like me but aren't saved yet, we call them poor, and that's where we go. Freedom to the captives, and we go, yeah, 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 those, those in bondage to sin, he wants to bring freedom to, which, hear me, yes and amen, absolutely. But Jesus was looking at people who were truly in physical captivity, bond servants and slaves, captives to the, to the Roman government over them. He was looking 
at their whole life. You are spiritually captive, but some of you are physically captive as well. To set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The the year of the Lord's favor. If you read in the Old Testament, you'll find something called the year of Jubilee. The year of the Lord's favor is, is the same thing. We think Jubilee now means like happiness. Yay, the Lord has come. What the year of Jubilee was, it was an actual thing. Every 50 years, everything was returned back to its original owner. If you were an indentured servant, which which many were at that time, I, I need this from you and I don't have the money for it, so what I'll do is I'll become your servant to pay for it instead. Okay? Many were in this, and and there was a law in Israel called the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Every 50 years, we hit the reset button. Everyone who's oppressed and a slave goes free. Everyone who had to sell what was their families so that they could survive, they get it back. This was a beautiful thing that the people would have understood as not just some, oh yeah, kind of spiritual thing. But truly, this was like a long-standing tradition, a law actually in Israel, where everything is set right. Truly, slaves are set free. And Jesus says, this happens today. The kingdom is near, and I'm here to set the oppressed free, both spiritually and, I believe, as a church, physically. We don't have it up on the wall here, but in, in Matthew 25, Jesus talking to those that are following him, and he goes, look, one day... We're all going to stand in judgment before the Lord. And some of them, he says, I'm going to stay away from me. You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't care for me. You you wouldn't even talk to me. And they're going to go, Lord, when did we even see you needing food, needing clothes, needing, needing visited in prison or sick? When did we even see it? And he's going to say, what you didn't do for the least of these, meaning the, the poor, the impoverished, the oppressed in the world, what you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. And he says, away from me. He's going to say to the other ones, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, you stayed with me when I was sick. And they're going to say, Lord, we never saw you in any of those situations. And he says, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. These weren't just spiritual concepts. He's saying the way you live your life in relation to the voiceless and the valueless, again, in quotes, is directly related to your relationship with me, to your partnership with me in the kingdom. In Jesus' day, many were devalued. This isn't something that just came about over the last couple hundred years or even thousands of years. A couple different people groups that were devalued then. One were non-Jews, Gentiles. This was one of those uh, slurs used to put a people group down. If you weren't a Jew, you were considered a Gentile. That would be, as far as I know, all of us in here. And and they would use that word Gentile, or sometimes they would use the word uncircumcised. And it was this, ugh, Gentiles. Ugh, the uncircumcised. It, It was against the law to even eat with a Gentile to go into a Gentile's home, to be seen in public talking with an uncircumcised was was one of the worst, quote-unquote, sins you could commit. And there are many stories I could point to, but just one 
Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 8, the story of the Roman centurion. There's this centurion who one of his servants is sick and is dying. And so he sends a man to Jesus and says, please, will you, will you heal my master's servant? He's, he's a good man. You know, he goes through this whole thing and Jesus says, yeah, okay, let's do it. And as he starts walking to go to this Gentile's house, which again is a no-no, the Gentile sends word. The, the Roman centurion sends word to him and says, no, teacher, please, you don't have to come to my house. Maybe this is because the guy just knows. You click your fingers and it happens, Jesus. I have to imagine there was a part of it that goes, I know that this kind of ends poorly for both of us if you set foot in my house. It's a no-no. They're going to turn on you. They're going to turn on me. Like, whatever the reason, he says, you don't need to come to my house. He says, I'm a man under authority. I know how this works. I give a command in the military, and I don't have to go follow it and make sure it's done. I give the command, and it happens. And he says, Jesus, you're the same way. If you command my servants well, even from a distance, it'll happen. And Jesus does, and the servant is healed. But then Jesus gives such honor and value to this Roman centurion, this uncircumcised Gentile, he would have been seen. He says, I have never seen such faith in all of Israel. I have been hanging out with you, quote unquote, God's people this whole time. And I have never seen faith like this filthy Gentile. He gets it. Jesus honored those that didn't have honor in the Jewish community. He gave such value to that centurion that people, they didn't know what to do with it. The Samaritans were another people group. They were literally called Samaritan dogs, half-breeds. They were part Jewish, part Gentile. There was intermingling and intermarriage that had happened to where the Jewish people said these are the lowest of the low. You couldn't even walk through Samaria if you were a good Jew. You definitely couldn't talk to a Samaritan. You definitely wouldn't help a Samaritan. They were off limits. They were filthy, literally called dogs. And yet we find Jesus walking through Samaria with his disciples, and one day he goes to the well, And there's this woman who comes to the well, another no-no. Women were also seen as valueless at the time. There was a few services that they provided for men, and that was about it. And Jesus actually talks to this woman. And the woman's response is, whoa, 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 you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. Like, this doesn't happen. You're crossing so many boundaries now. I am so far beneath you, you don't talk to me. And Jesus engages with her. And and on top of this, we find that she's not even good by Samaritan standards. She's there in the middle of the day, which was not the time to get water. Most likely, she couldn't go in the morning and the evening with the other women because they wanted nothing to do with her. She had been divorced so many times, she wasn't even following the Samaritan laws. And yet Jesus crosses every boundary to talk to her, to show her value to offer her life. And she actually becomes the first evangelist we have in Scripture. Runs back to her town and goes, you're not going to believe this guy I met. He knew everything about me, and he offered me life. you got to meet him. And the whole town comes out, and Jesus kind of starts this evangelistic rally in Samaria with the worst of the worst, quote, people. And he offers them value and life. 
The unclean. There's a story in Matthew chapter 8. Uh, these, uh, a leper that Jesus heals. Lepers in that time had to walk banging pots and pans through the town so everyone knew exactly where they were and could cross on the other side of the road. You gave lepers a, a wide berth because they were seen as sinful. They had done something deserving of leprosy was the common idea of the time. And so we just leave them alone to suffer. But Jesus does it differently. Jesus walks up to a man who probably hasn't had physical contact in years since his leprosy began, and he touches the man and he heals him. To touch a leper was to show such incredible value. It was unheard of in Israel. Could Jesus have stood back, just lobbed a prayer in there and seen the man healed? I mean, it worked with the Roman centurion's servant, right? But Jesus wasn't content with that. Everyone thinks this person is an untouchable, and I'm not going to feed into that. I'm stepping in. I'm going to lay my hands on him, and people will see a miracle. And that man rejoiced and, and praised the Lord. He had received value like no one else showed to him. The disabled. Uh, Jesus heals a blind man in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is walking through town, and there's this blind man off on the side of the road, kind of cast off by society. And he says, wait, what, what's going on? There's a, there's a big uproar happening. And they said, oh, Jesus is coming by. And he starts shouting, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd turns to him, even the disciples, and go, be quiet. He doesn't have time for you. He's an important man. Who are you to stop him? Be quiet. But he keeps shouting all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops everything and says, let him come. What is it you want me to do for you? He says, and the man says, I, I want to see. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Touches him and heals him. No one was of too low a station for Jesus to stop and minister to. No one was too different, too unclean, too valueless for Jesus. He not only saw value in everyone, he brought it out. He pointed it out. He showed them and he showed the world, this person has value. Finally, the sinners. And that's just, uh, the, the scriptures, there's a lot of times where they just quote to sinners. And Jesus would go and he would sit and he would eat with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. Again, the worst of the worst in Israel. Even to the point where the Pharisees would come up to his disciples and go, doesn't he know what he's doing? Doesn't he know who those people are? We, we've lost this a lot in our uh, culture. But back then, to eat a meal with someone was to say, you are my equal. To sit down at a table and break bread with someone is to go, you are worth every bit as much as me. You have value. Let's eat together. This was the beauty of communion. For, for us, often it's just turned into something we do. Oh, and we take some bread and we dip it in some juice and we say, thanks, Jesus. In their day, communion was bringing together people from all different walks of life, different races, different ethnicities, and going... We are the same because we sit at the same table. We're brothers and sisters, equal inheritance, co-heirs because of what Jesus did. And it was taking those that were up high and bringing them low. And those that were down low and it was bringing them up. James chapter 1 talks about this. 
the great equalizer of the cross. He says, if you're high, consider your great humility because you are a sinner and Jesus died for you. And if you're low, consider your high position because Jesus saw value in you and paid the price. So what does this look like for us? How do we go forward like Jesus? My goodness, if that's not always our question, something's broken. How do we go forward like Jesus? James 1.27 tells us this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Orphans and widows is kind of a code uh, in Scripture. Now, you can take it at face value. It did mean orphans and widows. But it was kind of this broader topic of orphans and widows were the most helpless people. They were the most voiceless people considered by, by culture the most valueless people because they offered nothing to society. Women were, were property. And if you were a widow, you weren't attached to a man, you were kind of old, used-up property. And children had no value. They just, it took money to feed them and train them, and they were a pain in the neck. And so especially orphans that didn't have parents, like, ugh, they were seen as the lowest of the low. And so James is going, look, you want to talk about true religion, what it really looks like to walk with God? Care for those that no one else cares for. Give voice and value to those that are voiceless and valueless in culture. This is religion. In the Old Testament, this is where it kind of comes home to us. How do we as a church handle this? Uh, we're going to look at a, at a passage out of Amos that some of you have probably heard a, a piece of it before. Where God is talking to his people. There wasn't a church yet. He was talking to the nation of Israel, those that he had called his people. And he has some very harsh things for them. He says, if you deny justice, and we'll read the passage here in a minute, but if you deny justice, don't bother singing. Don't bother putting anything in the offering plate. And he actually says, I hate when you do that. When you deny people value and justice and think that you can worship me. Amos 5, 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, righteousness like a never-failing stream. He says, you, as my people, have tried to divorce the two things. That we can worship God, that we can get the blessings of God... And we can allow those who have no one to speak up for them to go their own way. And he says, you cannot divorce those things. Don't think you can bring to me offerings and songs of praise and deny justice and righteousness. I hate it. I despise it. Those are such strong words. They cut me to the core. Isaiah 58, 
And I'm going to read the better part of the chapter. It's not on the wall. Again, speaking to the Jewish people and their knack for being quote-unquote religious and yet just going their own way. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them. Why have they fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot say as you do today, and expect your voice to be heard on high. Excuse me, you cannot fast as you do today, and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? Would you see the naked to clothe them and not turn from your own flesh and blood? Then, and I love this, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of finger and malicious talk, hear this. And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. He's saying, quit fasting, quit singing, quit gathering, if all it's about is trying to make ourselves feel better. If we're not spending ourselves on behalf of the needy, satisfying the needs of the oppressed, He says, it's all garbage. Quit playing games. I don't want to play games. And here's the thing. I love each of you in here as I look around and see your faces. I don't believe you guys are here to play games. These are hard words from Scripture that I bring for us to reflect on, not because I look at you and go, you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't get it. But I know my own heart. And I know often I forget. And this whole thing becomes about me and what makes me comfortable and what I like and what I don't like. And when I come to Scripture, what I find in in the example of Jesus, in the disciples as they go throughout the world, is them spending themselves on behalf of those that have need. We have all been called to use our wealth, our position, our power, our voice, whatever we have, on behalf of those who don't have. God has given you 
finances, authority, position, a voice, because other people don't have those things. And you're called to empower them. You're called to spend yourself on behalf of those that have need. What is it that God has given you that he is calling you to use on somebody else's behalf? Maybe it's your voice on social media. I'll be honest. I think some people put too many eggs in that basket, but it's not a bad place to start. How do you use the voice that God has given you? And this is hard, and some will push back against this, and please, we can talk. Your privileged white voice, my privileged white voice that people will listen to, how do I use that for those that people won't give the time of day to? For those that people write off before they ever speak because of where they come from, what they look like, black, white, impoverished, whatever it may be, how do I use my voice to speak up on their behalf? How do I use the financial blessings that God has given me to bless those who don't have? To give them opportunity that they can't get any other way? How do we use everything that God has given us, our position, our authority, our, our, our votes, our whatever it might be, to lift up those that can't lift themselves up. This is the call of the church. Again, I, well, here's the thing. This is a call of the church. I don't want to paint it as social justice is it. Just do social justice and everything else comes together. There's more to it, but what we also find is if we ignore justice, God says, I hate what you're doing. I don't want to hear it anymore. It's just words. Because I came to set the oppressed free, to break the yoke of slavery. And if you follow me, that's what you're about too. So what has God put in your hands to be able to use on behalf of those that don't have it? We have to call sin, sin. I'm, I'm just going to be real. There is racism all around us. Systemic, individually, whatever it may be. We have to call sin, sin. I'm going to be honest, like racially motivated jokes are not funny, they're sin. And if anyone should get this, West Virginians, it should be us. West Virginia jokes are not funny. Oh, that's a funny joke, making fun of abject poverty. Thanks. You know what's hilarious? Incest. Keep joking, super funny. It hurts. It devalues. There are people that look at the state of West Virginia and go, ugh, why would anyone ever? Because it's just become part of the rhetoric, the butt of a joke. We have been the butt of a joke for long enough that we understand how it hurts, how it devalues. I'll share one story real quick. I was here for like three months uh, when we first moved here like 11 years ago, and the elders were standing around telling West Virginia jokes. And I was like, oh, I got a zinger. Threw it out there. Jim Gaynor looked at me and went, you don't do that. <laughs> Not a smirk on his face. <laughs> you, you don't do that. Yes, sir. I took a step back, and they continued. Like, it was one of those things, like, we're from here. We can do it. Uh, not you. you know? And I was like, note to self, these are not funny anymore. Check. Like, because they realize, like, man, when, when somebody from outside makes these jokes, that's not okay. It's, it's devaluing us. We should get this. Those jokes are not funny. 
racial slurs, any kind of language that devalues, that puts another people group under is sin. It's not just that it's not funny or, oh, it makes me uncomfortable. It's sin. And we have to call it what it is. Something, it, we can call it a pet peeve if you want. Man, I see Confederate flags everywhere. They're not okay. They're signs, they're symbols of oppression and injustice. They're signs of slavery. They're not okay. It's not just about being a rebel and being a rebel's cool. What that says to every person that doesn't look like me is that I'm pretty cool with owning you if it were possible. You're, you're as good as property. It's not okay. It's not just a flag people need to get over. It communicates value or rather lack of value. There I have been just praying and asking the Lord, show me where I have sin in my own heart. Show me where I have racism in my own heart. I grew up in, in Ohio, but my neighborhood was predominantly white. It was out in the fields and farms, and most people looked like me. And I heard jokes, and my family had said things when I was growing up that at the time I just kind of went, oh, okay, that's how it is. And now I look at it and I go, that, that was racist. That was, that was devaluing people. That's not okay. And I've had to spend a lot of time examining my own heart and going, Lord, where is there sin in my own heart? We read it in Psalm 19 at the beginning of our service today, and David cries out and he says, Lord, keep me from willful sins. Show me where my heart has gone wrong, that I could live righteously before you. Psalm 139, which we referenced earlier, where it talks about how God uniquely crafts each person, and it ends with David going, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, there is some ugliness in my heart and I need for you to show me so that we can deal with it and move through it and I can be led in the way everlasting. Each of us in here needs to have time and we're going to take a few minutes at the end of the message to just say, Lord, is there sin in my heart? It starts with me. Before I point a finger at anyone else, God, examine me. And then help me to stand up for those who can't stand for themselves. What now? There, there is a, we have an opportunity uh, with about 90 other sister churches in our district um, on June 11th, so this coming Thursday, to participate in a day of fasting. Fasting for our country, fasting for our churches, fasting for communities that are hurting. And, and what this looks like is starting at 7 p.m. on Thursday, June 11th, and going through to 7 p.m., Friday, June 12th. That, that we wouldn't eat food, but every time, here, here, here's the way that I practice fasting. Every time my stomach grumbles, it's like an alarm going off, going, hey, remember why you're doing this. And it's that reminder to pray, Lord, there are oppressed in this country and your church needs to rise up. Give us boldness. Help us to give voice to those people. May they find justice. May our communities and, and our social structures, may they change where everyone has value. Lord, what part would you have me play? Whatever it may be. And so for that 24 hours, 
and I'll send something out later this week, an, an email reminding and explaining. But can we come together in prayer and fasting for our nation, for those who don't have, and for the church to be the church? So let me end with this. I'll briefly summarize two chapters in Ephesians because racism is not a brand new thing and racism in the church is not a brand new thing. Paul was writing to the Ephesian church and at this point in time in, in Ephesus, the Gentiles were on top. Most of the Christians, all the church leaders were Gentiles and there were some Jews who had started coming to faith and trying to come into the church. And at that point in time, the Gentiles were kind of going, oh, no, 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 no. You had nasty names for us for a long time. We were second-class citizens. Now we're in charge. And, and they were starting to lord things over. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul starts to go, stop, stop, stop. It, it's, it's a beautiful passage where, where Paul says, remember, it's by grace you've been saved. You didn't do anything to earn this. This is a gift given to you, Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, and it's also been given to the Jews. God has removed, and, and Paul uses this word, he's removed the divide between you that you could become one. Remember, you were sinners just like them, and God has redeemed you, and now he's bringing you together as one people group, building you up to be the church. And in Ephesians 3.10, he says the reason that God has been doing this, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is uniting us, different people groups, races, ethnicities, into one church because even those in the heavenly realms, when they see it, are going to go, Ooh, God, that's crazy. Who can do that but God? Even those in the heavenlies, let alone what the world will see when they see us removing the dividing line, the barrier, and moving together in unity black, white, brown, whatever. We are co-heirs and co-laborers. Let's go. And he also realized that this was a massive undertaking that short of a miracle of God cannot and will not happen. So he prays that their hearts would be full of love, that they would experience the fullness of Christ. And then he prays this in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God, bring the church together. Remove the dividing line, Jew, Gentile, black, white, whatever it may be. Bring us together, and this will take a miracle. It will take a God who's able to do immeasurably more than anything I can even picture. That's the kind of power that it will take, but praise be to God, because that's the kind of power he has. So Lord, would you work that miracle in us? In, in the Alliance Church here in Elkins and our sister churches, God, in the church across the nation, would you work your miraculous power, uniting us together, a people on the move, in kingdom power, bringing kingdom value to those that don't have it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.
Amen. So the way that we're going to close is by spending just two minutes. Uh, we're not going to sing a song to close, and if kids are getting restless and whatever, that's okay. We'll deal with that. But we're going to spend a few minutes just in whatever silence we can get, just praying like David. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, it's a great place where David just says, search me and know me, God. Test me. If there's anything not of you in my heart, point it out so that you can lead me in the way everlasting. And so we want to just have a bit of quiet time to say, Lord, search me and know me. If there is anything in me that is holding others down, that refuses to give value, that wants to spend myself on myself, bring it to the forefront, Jesus, so we can deal with it. So let's spend a few minutes in silence just asking the Lord to speak, and then I'll pray and close us. Again from Isaiah. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Lord Jesus, may we go forward in that kind of power. We pray often as a church that our light would break forth like the dawn, that people would see you in us. God, may we go with a heart to spend ourselves on behalf of others to break the chains of injustice, God, to meet the needs of the oppressed. We need you, Lord Jesus, to show us step by step what that looks like. This is a big, hairy situation. And God, we find ourselves in a place where if you don't show up, we're sunk. We're going to screw this up. Would you speak to us and through us? Would you move us? God, I, I love Cheryl sharing earlier that you moved her to share chicken money. Uh, Lord, with, with the next person that walks through the door, and of course, who was it? May you lead us. May you speak with that kind of clarity to each of us, God, and may we have hearts ready to listen. Move your church forward, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. We're running a little late. Thank you, kids. You guys were fantastic. I really appreciate that. God bless you guys. And again, we're still practicing social distancing. So um, if you want to hang around and talk, I would just suggest doing it outside um, just to get rid of some incidental contact. Thank you. God bless you.